So grab your Bible and open to John chapter 7. We're going to look at the last verse of that text and the first 11 verses of John 8. Um, There's been a little bit of discussion and definitely interest for those who would say, if we were to do this on a regular basis, they would quite enjoy it. Um, And so I'm definitely thinking about that, thinking about how we could have a time like this. But tonight, so you understand, is a one-time gathering. And the reason for it is because we're going to look at a text that's unique. Um, It's one that we've probably read about a lot, we've heard about a lot. Um, But as we look at it, um, this is a text that I didn't preach uh, on Sunday. And not because it was controversial or I disagreed with the text, But really, um, as we were wanting to go systematically through the Gospel of John, um, really what is clear, if most of your Bibles probably have the header that say, the earliest manuscripts do not include this text. And so what happens is, in that section, it really breaks up what Jesus is saying. And so through prayer and study, really realizing to really continue week after week to communicate what Jesus was saying between John 7 and John 8, it'd be valuable to, to not break that up of preaching the last section of John 7 and then John seven fifty three through eight eleven, and then doing uh, uh, John 8. And so actually what I opted to do is this evening, so it's going to be a little bit uh, unique, probably the most unique teaching I have ever done. Um, we'll have a, a little bit of chance to dialogue, but really we're going to walk through why is this text in here? Why? What does that mean? How we can uh, trust uh, still this passage? But that's what I want you to know. It's very uh, unique in this style of teaching. So it's going to be a little bit more like uh, Bible study meets Bible class so, uh, with a little bit of a sermon in there. Um, but as I shared in the end here of chapter seven, when it begins in chapter eight, it says that the earliest manuscripts do not include these verses. And it's either uh, in your Bibles, it's probably either set off in brackets or it's in a footnote. And really the reason for this is that most New Testament scholars do not think it was part of the gospel of John when it was first written. They don't believe this is part of John's writing, but it was added much later. Um, and so some of those uh, more currently in the last uh, 100 years or so um, have written on this and explained why. And so one is uh, Don Carson, uh, alive today, a very well-known New Testament scholar, um, probably one of the best uh, today. Um, and he wrote, despite the best efforts To prove that this narrative was originally part of John's gospel, the evidence is against them, and modern English versions are right to rule it off from the rest of the text as an NIV, New English Version, ESV, or to regulate it to the footnote as in RSV, which is, I believe, Revised Standard Version. And in fact, actually, when when it was first uh, released, that translation, the RSV, it was uh, not included at all. And there was a lot of controversy around that. And by popular demand, it was added back in, but still within those brackets. And so there was a lot of commenting back and forth. And another uh, New Testament scholar, Leon Morris, who was popular back in the early 40s through 60s, he said of this, that the textual evidence makes it impossible to hold that this section is an authentic part 
of this gospel letter. And so many scholars wrote that they, some believe it's not a, a true story, some believe it is, um, but many believe that it's not a part what John wrote. And so here's what I want you to know. I think, I think they're right, um, that it's not a part of John's narrative. And so this is why I didn't preach it previously on a Sunday morning, um, that it really is right to see it as an inserted story. But I don't believe it's made up. Um, I do believe this is something that happened. Um, it, it's clear for several reasons that John didn't write it, uh, but that it was uh, very clearly something in Jesus's ministry at one point. And so really the two reasons, like I said, I didn't preach it on the Sunday, is since we know John didn't write it, it really breaks up what is happening between John chapter seven and John chapter eight. And also in the end, I just wanted more time to interact with you um, because this would be a fun way for us to look at it, um, not during our weekend services, but really get to look at it more uniquely uh, than a sermon. And so looking at the text tonight this way kind of gives us a chance to spend a little more time on a specific branch of, of Bible study known, or, or biblical study, known as textual criticism. And if you've never heard that before and probably never heard many things I'm going to say tonight, that's okay. The, the idea is not that we leave here as scholars. But the language of textual criticism, what that means is it's a method used to determine what the original manuscripts of the Bible said. What did they mean? What did they have to say? And so really it's comparing text with text for original wording. And so tonight my desire is twofold in this. Probably most, like I said, most unique teaching I'll ever do, even if we do Wednesday night services. So just know that. But my desire tonight is to really examine the text, um, examine the, the textual criticism, look at the personal application still in this text, and really then resolve, my hope is at the, at the end, resolve on why I believe we can trust the scriptures, the inerrant word of God. And so just to summarize the reasons first why scholars give uh, for really thinking this story was not originally a part of, God, of John's gospel. If you're taking notes, I'm gonna give you uh, about six things um, to what lead scholars, uh, both long time ago and recent scholars today, why they agree that this story was not part of John's narrative. Uh, first, the story is actually missing from all the Greek manuscripts of John before the fifth century. And so going back early, they're not a part of those manuscripts um, in fact, all of the earliest church fathers leave out this passage in commenting on John, and they literally pass directly from John chapter 7, 52 to John chapter 8, verse 12. And so, in fact, the text flows naturally. And I know I keep repeating this to you, that if you leave out the story and you just read through the passage and you go from John chapter 7, 52 to 8, 12, and you really read it in that light, not trying to remove it or cross it out from our Bibles, but really seeing what's happening in the narrative, you really see the consistent flow of what Jesus is saying and why he's saying it. And so if you kind of want to listen to that flow, because for us, it tends to be, when we go over expositions of scripture, it tends to be broken up week by week. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to those sermons back to back. So you can really hear 
um, in that how what I'm presenting on Sunday mornings in those two weeks is really just one consistent understanding of the Feast of Booths and what Jesus is saying, what he's doing, how that ties to the, the ceremonies and the practices of those time and why then this would kind of insert right in the middle of what Jesus is saying and what he's doing. So I encourage you to go listen to those. You don't have to, but it would be valuable too. And so there's a, there's a couple other reasons uh, why, uh, why the scholars uh, today and before viewed that this was not in. And one of the other reasons was there is no Eastern church father that cites the passage before the 10th century when dealing with this gospel. And then even when the story starts to appear in manuscripts later, when the, when the story of this text comes up in the Gospel of John, it actually shows up in three different places other than in, other in, this, other than in this section, forgive me, um, and that is uh, that some insert it in John chapter 7, verse 36. Some insert this story beginning at John chapter 7, 44. And then also some manuscripts even insert it in uh, as late as chapter 21 after verse 25. And in, and in some of the manuscripts, it's even not in the, in the gospel of John, but in the gospel of Luke. And some will even put it in Luke and it will show up after in chapter 21. And so there's many reasons why scholars really believe this is not part of John's natural flow because also after all of that, there's even a style and a vocabulary difference in how John writes in his letter to how this section is written. And so this is why many scholars, and and I would say even pastors, leaders today, do not view this as John's writing. And so I just want you to understand as we continue to look at this, I believe this note is correct. When the Bible says the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through uh, 811, there's a lot of study that we can do. And I know I've just shared a lot of facts with you that you've maybe never heard before or you might not know where to find them after this. And that is okay. Like I said, I do not expect all of us to leave after here and go, okay, now I got my scholar badge. I'm good to go. Uh, That's not the point of it. But I think always as a church, uh, as a community of believers, we should be pressing in and asking questions of the word together. Um, So that's why the the opportunity for tonight is really to go, okay, this is what scholars are telling us. What does that mean? What is the text? What does the text still teach us? What does this mean that the text is not part of John's writing, but we do still find it valuable? And so understand all the information I'm sharing with you tonight is part of a very technical field of scholarship that really requires not only an ability to read ancient languages, um, to which I cannot do, I don't believe any of us can do, um, but also it it requires a reading of of kinds of ancient languages handwriting scripts. And so it's a very uh, detailed kind of work that many scholars have done, many godly uh, men who have really uh, sought and, and really desired to really not only preserve the word of God, but really examine what is true. And so let me give you some, some basics so we understand the, the preservation and the history uh, of the word. The New Testament that we know 
um, that we know now was originally written in Greek. And you may have heard that before, but the first printed Greek New Testament that came off a printing press, which is a very common concept for us. We think of uh, books coming off the printing press, books getting published. That's very common. It was not so common even in the 1500s. And so the first printed Greek New Testament came off the printing press, and it was published by Erasmus in 1516. And that turned the world upside down. If you've never studied church history, it is a fascinating study to see not only how the word has been preserved, but what are some of the issues that come up as the word goes from very limited to scholarly view to very public to everyone's view. And so really what this means is we see that Erasmus writes uh, and, and really releases the first Greek New Testament. What we see is that this means that before the printed version, before that, for 1,500 years, the manuscripts of the biblical books were really passed down to us through handwritten copies. And so this is how we have access to the actual words that the New Testament writers wrote with their very hands. And so even today, as far as we know, none of the first or original manuscripts exist today. And so the books of the New Testament were preserved by a really faithful, hardworking set of copyists. And so the copies really have uh, different uh, manuscript focuses, and together they really tell with clarity the narrative of how the word has been preserved. And so again, like I said, very technical, lots of information, but the idea behind all of this is that what we have has been carefully handed down through generations and years of history, that the word has been faithfully preserved. And so with the multitude of manuscripts that we have, they're really able then, scholars are able to compare text with text. That's what textual criticism is, where scholars can simply examine what the original writing is and what is the scribal, the handwritten copyist edition. And so this is what we have in the text that we're kind of examining tonight in John chapter 7 verse 53 to chapter eight, verse 11, which is the story of the woman caught in adultery. So what we, what we find, not just from the, the scholar's work, but from the text, it is really that this is a, a story a, a, that a scribe is writing in and adding, adding in at this point. But still, this is, this is a great story. I mean, many of us have probably heard sermons on it. We, they've done studies around it. Uh, and they've probably read it a few times. I mean, uh, I would imagine some of you have read this text many times before. Um, And so before we go to it, and I kind of walk through it a little bit, and what we still learn from this, um, what I think would be valuable is, uh, one, to really examine for ourselves, kind of have a dialogue of what was uh, maybe a teaching that we've heard from this. What What have we learned from this text uh, before. Uh, and then if I can have one of you, I'd love to have one of you read the text, um, and then we'll really uh, briefly examine it together. But l- let's start there. Uh, have any of you heard a teaching on it or really gotten a chance to read through this text uh, before? And if yes, then what have you learned? 
So my, my hope in, in having us kind of dialogue a little bit about this is really to, as you have shared, there's, there's still great value in this, in this text. And like I said, I absolutely believe this is something that, that happened within Jesus's ministry. And so we don't look at it at all as um, lesser than, and I think even we can do some dangerous work if we kind of treat it uh, um, in that kind of manner of, of push it off and don't look at it. And so that's the purpose of tonight, to still really look at it, to still really examine it. So over the next little bit, what we're going to do, this is where I said you're gonna, it's kind of going to be like a Bible class a little bit and then a, a short little sermon. So here's my hope is that if I can have one of you read it and then we're going to examine the text um, in almost a sermon-like fashion, although I don't know that I'd call it a sermon, but really just examining uh, what's going on in the text and how that really harmonizes uh, with the rest of the New Testament. So can I have somebody read the text? So as we take the next few moments to really look at the text, what we, what we find in the beginning is a very common thing we find throughout uh, the Gospels, and that is that people are gathered around Jesus and he is teaching and so this is where uh, we see this, this interaction. Again, one of the things I find even intriguing, this is a really uh, small note, is, is that in Jesus' time, the teacher sat and the people stood. So we're doing things a little backwards these days um, where really the teacher would, would sit at a point where everybody could see and then everybody would stand. Um, but that's okay. We're not doing anything too bad. Um, but uh, what we find later in the text in verse three through five that Kellen just read for us, we find this conflict beginning where it says the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And so they're, as we see, it says they're placing her in the, in, in the midst and they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And we've seen this before in the Gospel of John, in fact. I mean, this text is consistent with a major issue and theme throughout this letter. And really, it's that this is a shameless test to see if Jesus will contradict the law. The Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders, they are always trying to catch Jesus and trying to get to see, okay, is Jesus gonna contradict himself? And really what we find um, in verse six is the answer to this. Uh, as, as it's written, this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And so here, do you see how they are just maliciously trying to destroy Jesus's character and claims? I mean, they're wanting to catch him in an inconsistency of his devotion to the law. And, and see, what's interesting is so much so that they actually contradicted themselves. I mean, see, if we go back in the Old Testament, the law said, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. And so here's what's interesting. The law says, both of them shall die. And so there's already something questionable going on here because only the woman is brought forward. And so understand, there's no such thing as adultery where only one party is guilty. So here she is before them, and there's no man here present. And the law commands that both shall die. 
And so really the, the question then is how committed are these scribes and these Pharisees to the law? See, it's, it's really that the law is a pretext for their judgment and their accusation against Jesus. And so verse six makes explicit what their motives were. And so this really isn't about honoring the law and seeking justice. They're not really desiring to keep God's law holy. They have their own motives and they have their own intentions. In fact, they were using this woman, they're using the law to get rid of Jesus, to catch Jesus. And so they weren't really truly devoted to the law. It was their tool for divisiveness and control. And so look at how Jesus responds in verse seven, when he says, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. So if you notice from the text, one, they are questioning him in the middle of his teaching. They're really going after him maliciously and very publicly. And what we see is Jesus stands up and he confronts them. And so this is another consistency and, and, and a thing that we see as a fact when we find this in, in texts all throughout the Gospel of John, that Jesus often gets up in the middle of his teaching and really he even interrupts in response to the accusing party and he presents them with the truth. And so this is what Jesus does here, that he doesn't contradict the law I mean, he doesn't even say, don't stone her. That's an interesting thing in the text. He doesn't say, don't stone her, which was probably very scary for the woman as she's before all of these people. He simply says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw at her. And so Jesus is really forcing them and he's really exposing for them to be confronted with their own misuse of the law. He's putting back on them what they're trying to do to him. And so what happens? Well, in verse nine, it tells us that one by one, they left. And in fact, Paul, what you shared, I think it's a very interesting detail that the older go first and then the younger. Um, and I, I'm, I may be wrong, but I, I thought about that in, in my study time. I think it's because the older really know their argue, argument was flawed and inconsistent. They're going, okay, we got, we got nothing uh, against him. And, and the younger, like some of us younger have a tendency to do, if we're flawed and, and inconsistent in an argument, we're going to stick around and keep arguing. Even if we got no leg to stay, stay on, uh, we're going to fight and we're in it to win it, even if we've lost already. Um, but we see how these older peers leave then makes the younger leave. They really see, okay, we've lost here. This isn't going to go well. And then it's just Jesus and the woman standing there. So really the, the question is, was it because a, a judge or a Pharisee had to be sinless in order to uphold the law? See, the answer is no, because the point was not that judges and religious leaders must be or, or even could be sinless. We need to understand that. None of the religious leaders of that time could be sinless. The point was that righteousness and justice should be founded on a gracious spirit. And if it's not, what you get, what the end result is, is a heartlessness and a hypocrisy of the Pharisees. 
you get this very pharisaical response. And so that's the point. It's not just here, but it's also throughout the Gospels. And so actually, time and time again, we see Jesus standing against the Pharisees' view of the law. If you, were, if you uh, know the Gospels, uh, in Matthew chapter 9, in verse 13, Jesus told the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And then also consider what he said in the Gospel of John. We've seen this before earlier in chapter 7, in verse 23, regarding their inconsistency to the law and even to the Sabbath. Jesus said to the Pharisees, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well. And again, you can imagine how this conversation is going. The, the religious leaders continue to bring before Jesus an issue, but really it's with the selfish motive. It's not with true desire to know and to understand and to seek him. It's really that they want to catch him and demonize him and dethrone him. They don't like Jesus. And so again, how the religious leaders were handling the law is something we find in the text. That they were actually handing the law very inconsistently and unrighteously and gracelessly. I mean, it was more centered around tradition and habit than transformation pointed toward holiness. And so this is what Jesus preached against again and again. Don't be like the religious leaders. In fact, in one of Jesus's famous sermons, in the Sermon on the Mount, he told them in Matthew chapter five, verse 20, he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so here's a really difficult comparison that Jesus presents to these people. If you wanna enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to be more righteous than the Pharisees. Or so that's how many would read it. See, what Jesus is saying is that in order to exceed the righteousness displayed by the religious leaders, it has to go deeper. Righteousness has to go deeper than how the religious leaders handled this. And so really for us to understand how to not handle judgment, how to not handle the text even as the Pharisees would, our righteousness needs to go deeper than theirs did. And so our righteousness exceeds, and it would go deeper than that of the scribes and the Pharisees in kind, but not degree. And what I mean by that is what the law shows us again and again is that the heart of the issue is the issue of the heart. And they only resolve to a heart of stone, to an unrighteous heart is a righteous heart. And so tonight, this really should be an important application for us, that our keeping of, of any law or being righteous by any, any standard is not found in us, it's found in Christ and Christ alone. And so this is what the religious leaders are getting wrong. They're saying, no, we judge by our right standard. We judge by how good we are. And Jesus is reminding them as he has been all throughout the gospels, no, 
your standard is not good enough. And that's why he tells people in his Sermon on the Mount, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. And so understand our standard, like the religious leaders in the text, if, if our own standard is the standard for righteousness, it's going to result in the same kind of approach as we find in this text. It's going to result in wrong accusations and, and wrong usage of the law and of all of scripture. But really, what we find at the end is that Christ's standard is to offer grace. His point and his aim is to uphold the law and to fulfill it. And so the story points us to the message of the whole New Testament, that righteousness is found only in Jesus Christ. And by grace, we come to him. And by grace, we are forgiven. And so look at the last two verses of the text. In verse 10 and 11, it says, Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. See, here, Jesus isn't condoning whatever the woman has engaged in. Actually, by what he's saying, he's calling her to repentance. But it's not turn or burn. It's, it's genuine, true repentance, so this is what he means by, from now on, sin no more. And so what we're reminded of through this text is that forgiveness for sins and the call to, to leave our sin behind is found in Christ, in Christ alone. So this is really the heart and the theme of, of a text like this, that in Jesus Christ there is grace and truth. I mean, he does not uh, step back from the Pharisees and say, no, we'll, we'll deal with this conflict later. He doesn't remove himself. He presses in both with grace and truth. And so tonight, I want you to understand, although we acknowledge that this text is not part of John's inspired writing, we do know in this text, this is a consistent uh, communication of Jesus's gospel. I mean, we know Jesus often responded with grace and compassion. I mean, especially to people who were often thought of as the worst of sinners. I mean, for example, remember uh, the woman at the well in John chapter four, or the sinful woman mentioned in Luke seven. And so in this, what we find is, is definitely a consistent message of Jesus where he says to us, through the call of the gospel, to leave behind our sin, be forgiven in him alone, and live fully in him. And so an important resolve for us tonight is that we're reminded by the whole Bible, even with these scribe uh, additions and notes, the word is preserved and carried through the ages to tell the most important message and that's why we're in the Gospel of John. That as John writes in John chapter 20, verse 31, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so understand, even when we deal with these unique texts, this is what the Bible teaches. This is the whole message of all of Scripture. 
And, and so with that being said, I, I want to encourage you, really read your Bible. Don't just uh, read it for the sake of saying that you've read through the whole thing. Many can say that, but really study it. Really go to the text and really seek to know who Jesus is, that you may grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, that you'd be able to draw close to him and come to him by grace. And so I want you to understand it's so important to use the resources God has given us to study and to grow in the word of God. There are some incredible study materials out there. And so let me tell you, a study of the word is an incredible thing. Because in it, it's not so that we grow big heads and we can say we're the church that, that you know, can, can do the, the, the Bible sword uh, competitions and we can uh, rattle off verses left and right, but that we may know Christ. That's the purpose. That's why we spend evenings like this and say, here's what this text means. Here's what this text looks like because we want to dig into the word and know the word. And so I want to encourage you in that. And I just want to close on this. Um, I just want to take a moment because for some, they have read this or they will read this and really uh, wonder, can we trust the Bible then? If there's these scribe editions or your pastor just didn't teach it on a Sunday, but he did on a Wednesday, can you trust the Bible if this is, if this is a scribe edition? And I want to encourage you and send you out with this. Yes. Absolutely, yes, can you trust the Bible? And I, I really wish I had, uh, I just purchased a resource um, that I posted online about not long ago from another pastor, um, an author named Tim Chalice. I think that's how you say his name. But he has a resource um, coming out soon called A Visual Theology Guide to the Bible. And it's just this great uh, visual display with graphs and slides. A guy like me nerds out on it like crazy. It's a coffee book for theology nerds. That's really what, uh, it's a coffee table book. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, but my hope was to really have some of those slides and some of that information. But I want to put that in your hands when it's uh, released later this month. Um, because there is some great historical and visual record of the word having been preserved. I mean, more than any other historical document, the word has been preserved. It has stood the test of time. And even those who uh, try to refute it, um, even for some, it's, it's, it's led them to the Lord. Um, there's just such beautiful and clear truth. And we know from the word, why do people reject it? Well, the word makes clear that there's times where people are going to ignore it. They're gonna view what we believe is folly. But can we trust it? Yes. And so I, I hope to put that resource in your hand because he really asks those questions that I think are important for us to be asking. Uh, how has the Bible been preserved for us? Can we trust the Bible? And the material is just a great resource that says yes, and here's what we've seen throughout time. And so understand, many question the Bible. They question its authority and its authenticity, or I would say most concerning, its inerrancy. But really, church, what I would encourage you to really consider, um, if, if there are those in your life who are, who are questioning that, um, our mind is never to be a higher standard than the truth of the Bible. 
um, the Bible is self-authenticating and true. Um, really, as, as uh, one of my favorite preachers once said, Spurgeon, he said, the Bible doesn't need to be defended. The Bible's like a lion. Let it out of its cage. Let it do its thing. Um, it can defend itself. Um, and so when we come to texts like this, don't feel like, oh, now we need to have all this scribe information. We have to be able to defend it to all of our friends. No, some will, will find these as inconsistencies, but throughout time, the truth has remained that scripture is true. And even in these variances of what we see in the text, um, it doesn't make the Bible untrue. Even what we just learned from it. Um, it reminds us of the grander narrative. And so what I'd really love to share with you is what we find that Paul writes to uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter three. In verses 16 and 17, he says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, for every good work. And so understand, while thousands of years have passed since God breathed out the Old and New Testament scriptures, they remain the living and perfect word. So through the the scriptures, as they've passed through countless scribes and many forms from the old papyrus to to paper and phones, um, we can be confident that the word we read is the very word that was breathed out by God and written by the prophets and apostles. And so this text, as we look at it, what we can still remember and and learn is that this story really uh, reminds us of the grand narrative of the New Testament, that righteousness is found only in Jesus Christ. And by grace, we come to him alone. And by grace, we are forgiven. That's what we find in the text. That's what we're reminded that even when scribes add these additions, we can trust the word that God has preserved that has stood the test of time. So let's pray.